The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and over the coming weeks and months I'm going to be doing interviews with left-wing authors on a wide range of topics, including the history and transformation of the British Labour Party, social reproduction theory, the war in Syria, xenofeminism, the question of cultural appropriation, the history of ISIS and much else. You can listen in on SoundCloud and we should soon be available on iTunes and you can also follow the podcast on Twitter. We're at Poll Theory Other. This week, I'll be discussing anti-Semitism and the Labour Party with Richard Seymour. Richard is the author of many books, including The Liberal Defence of Murder, Unhitched, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, Against Austerity, and most recently, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. He is commissioning editor for the journal Salvage, and Richard recently published a long read for Jacobin magazine entitled Labour's Anti-Semitism Affair. You can find it online. The, uh, the accusations of anti-Semitism that have been made um, against the, the Labour leadership and um, also much of the, uh, the grassroots, especially um, momentum and so on, it seems to have provoked two contrasting reactions on the left. One reaction seems to have been to just deny these accusations out of hand and say, you know, there's there's no problem of anti-Semitism on the left and that this is purely stirred up by the the media and parts of the PLP in order to undermine the Labour leadership. And then on the other hand, there's a, a segment of the left which, from what I can sort of uh, glean from, from talking to people who are active in, in their CLPs and so on, uh, seems to be more um, associated with with younger members of the Labour Party uh, and actually members of Momentum itself, who seem to take the accusations more seriously and, and, and are prepared to say, sure, this is might be stirred up by the media to attack the leadership, but that doesn't mean there isn't real anti-Semitism. Could you explain what your view is? Well, uh, I tend to lean towards the younger members that you just described, uh, in as much as I think that um, one of the sources of resistance to acknowledging anti-Semitism, uh, well, there are many, but one of them is that it's become detached from uh, state power, uh, from uh, powers of oppression. So there is anti-Semitism. It's toxic. It doesn't have the same teeth that it used to have. So this is um, one of the reasons why people... Uh, People are not willing to see it, I would imagine. Um, nonetheless, uh, you only have to spend enough time in anti-imperialist pro-Palestine circles um, and some other parts of the sort of the alt-left, as you might call it, 
to encounter examples where conspiratorial thinking segues into uh, anti-Semitic thinking. And uh, the segue, the, the point where the one blends into the other is not always crystal clear. Um, but when you've got a portrait, the, the mere one mural, uh, which depends upon representing um, uh, a number of individuals uh, with characteristically Jewish, um, you know, stereotypically Jewish uh, characteristics. Um, we're talking here about what uh, Paul Gilroy called raciology. That is uh, the deployment of physical characteristics associated with race to construct uh, a social stereotype and to evoke that. And the social stereotype being evoked here quite clearly um, is the idea of cunning, money-counting Jews um, accumulating on the backs of everyone else. So that's a, a form of race-making ideology. And the fact that a lot of people don't see it um, is obviously something to worry about because, on the one hand, had it been disseminated by the right, had this been in Trump's Twitter feed, everyone would have seen it. It would have been retweeted and denounced. It would have, There would be no argument. The fact that uh, it was initially defended by some on the left uh, complicates things for people um, and makes it more likely that they'll have an open mind to it. Um, and that's a problem. And that means that the left has got a job of work to do in terms of political education. I would also say, um, uh, and here I'm uh, taking the argument from uh, my comrade Barnaby Rain, um, who points out um, that, you know, if this had been published in another time, uh, not just if it was published by Trump, but if it had been published at any other time, perhaps, say, if it had been published in the interwar period, it would have been recognised as enemy propaganda. Um, and I think that uh, this is a very important insight. Um, so there's obviously been uh, the loss of some uh, tradition of education and understanding with regard to anti-Semitism. There are historical and contextual reasons for that, which we should go into. Uh, but the immediate problem now is how to undertake that education without just collapsing into a panic orchestrated by a media that is itself not free of anti-Semitism, as we saw with the Judas case. We mm. saw how these so-called philo-Semitic uh, instincts and, and uh, stereotypes actually invert into their opposite, um, as indeed uh, many Jewish com commentators have been pointing out for some time. So, I mean, in terms of kind of the, the different reactions, um, I think, as you're suggesting, you know, part of this seems to be a, an, an education problem. Uh, it seems to me there was a period during the 90s and the early 2000s where the left was in a very bad place. It was small. It was marginal. It didn't really have the capacity to perform that sort of educative work. And it seemed to encourage a proliferation of, of conspiratorial thinking. You know, I'm thinking of things like the Zeitgeist movies and, you know, there was Loose Change, all the stuff about 9-11 and so on. <laughs> um, yes. But at the same time, uh, it, there also seems to have been a kind of resistance to taking seriously the accusations of anti-Semitism from people who really ought to know better. I'm thinking of, of some of the, the more unreconstructed of our uh, Trotskyist uh, friends. Yeah, well, you're talking to uh, uh, somebody who has been through the Trotskyist mill, so I get this, um, and I know where it's coming from and why. Um, one of the things uh, that's worth bearing in mind in that respect is that uh, 
Trotskyist group of schools in the United Kingdom uh, are often closely linked to strands of Jewish anti-Zionism, which have been marginalized uh, within uh, their own community, within the Jewish community, um, and have found a niche uh, within revolutionary politics often. Um, and I mean, even, you know, the party that I came from, uh, the Socialist Workers Party, um, uh, it made a number of mistakes on this question and put, calling them mistakes is being generous. Uh, but I mean, the SWP was essentially founded by a guy who was a Palestinian Jew uh, who had uh, stood against Zionism um, on the grounds of internationalism against the nationalist and chauvinist uh, politics of exclusion, uh, against the anti-Arab politics and so on. And so he brought that anti-Zionist politics to the formation of the SWP. Um, but then, of course, that led, uh, I mean, it didn't lead, but it was um, it turned into, in the sort of era that you mentioned, particularly in the 2000s, a softness with regard to anti-Semites. Um, so Gilad Atzman was given a stage um, to, first of all, to, to speak his anti-Semitic rubbish, and then uh, sort of used as a sort of jazz player to raise money and all the rest of it. Um, there was some sort of tactical silences about other forms of anti-Semitism. Um, and this was partly rooted in the idea that, yes, there was anti-Semitism. Yes, it was it was poisonous, but it wasn't particularly widespread. It wasn't a real threat. And talking about it would somehow deflect from the far more serious and invidious types of racism that were on the rise then, such as Islamophobia, which, of course, did have the teeth of the state. Um, now, that, of course, is treating racism as a zero-sum game, um, but it's rooted in the, um, you know, you could say in a positive way, uh, the confidence of having a certain type of analysis and being uh, disciplined enough to stick to it. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, it becomes dogma um, and it becomes often subordinate to quite cynical uh, uh, party politicking and all the rest of it. Um, so... I get where some of this is coming from and where it uh, goes from being just a sort of standard dogma to becoming bad faith. Um, so we've got the conspiracy theorist. We've got um, a certain type of um, uh, sort of revolutionary dogma. I think both of those things, you note, uh, are linked to uh, isolation as well. Being in political isolation can encourage one to... Uh, go down all sorts of strange routes um, in pursuit of an illusory kind of power. You know, there were a lot of people on the left in that period who thought, well, maybe we can make an alliance with the libertarian right. This was counterpunch's strategy. This was Alexander Coburn, the great Alexander Coburn of all people, thought that if he jumped into bed with every lunatic uh, from the uh, uh, sort of libertarian right, um, and that included in the end people like Israel Shamir, who was an outright Holocaust denier, that um, they could at least create some sort of populist, anti-imperialist alliance and stop some of the war. Um, I mean, an absolute disaster of a strategy. Uh, so that's some of where that comes from. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, if you go back uh, and look at uh, where Ken Livingston's politics come from, which I think is worth broaching, and he's got nothing to do with Trotskyism, but He's got a, you know, I mean, it, it, when his sort of strain of the left was emerging and even quite powerful in the sort of early to mid 80s, um, it was emerging in a context where 
support for Palestine was new, where uh, dis disaffection with Israel, especially on the left, was new, and where Thatcher's attempt to make peace with um, uh, sort of supporters of Israel and indeed to cultivate Jewish supporters partly on that axis um, was also new. So on the one hand, there was this um, sense of um, a shock and a break and on the other hand, there was also a sense that, well, this, uh, uh, you know, we are changing the way the left does business. Uh, we're um, it, bringing anti-racism uh, much more to the fore than it has been in the past. We're not class reductionists. Um, and if anti-racism includes anti-Zionism, then that has to be what happens. And so that's part of how his particular politics was forged. And so, you know, when he sort of goes off in his loose cannon interventions, he's drawing on people, as he said, like Lenny Brenner, who's an American Trotskyist, uh, who wrote a famous critique of Zionism uh, in the age of dictators. Um, and those kinds of ideologies were just beginning to percolate then. There are a lot of people who have uh, been long-standing critics, not just of Israeli policy, but specifically of the politics and structures of Zionism as a political movement from the left on internationalist and democratic grounds, who in their isolation and in their marginality accumulated habits of brittleness and defensiveness and uh, you know, perhaps a certain tone deafness that you know, led us to the point that we're at. But obviously, uh, when you've got a movement that potentially can take some sort of power, even if it's only the sort of uh, power of taking office, uh, and that, that's not to be sniffed at, um, that forces the question in a rather different way. And I think it's forcing people to uh, get more serious. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think that um, that for the left, the way that this will shake out may actually be quite productive and that this might actually, um, although clearly it's, it's, it's not, um, it is being, you know, weaponized to some extent to attack the Labour Party, but that it might have some beneficial consequences. It can do. It depends what we do with it. Um, if we just, I mean, had the response been just to batten down the hatches and say this is just another attack, um, then we would be in a very bad place and we would be heading to a worse place. Um, if, on the other hand, the dominant response is we have to learn how to do this better, um, we have to up our game, then, yeah, there are gains that can be made. Practically, there is a question of can we do this properly from the left? In other words, can we do this without it being a simper to the right, to the liberal right, as it were, um, to try and win favour with the sort of dominant political superego? We don't want to sort of end up addressing the realities of racism just in order to look respectable. That would be ridiculous. I mean, it would be contemptible in many ways. Um, so the issue is, on what basis are we doing this? And I think we have to do it on the basis of a left-wing analysis of race, class, and capitalism. And that means we need to engage seriously with not just the sort of the concrete uh, murky details uh, of specific instances, but we have to think about um, the history and the theory of this. And there, you know, there are people who are doing this. Ash Sarkar at uh, Navarra Media um, is consistently um, the level of the discourse on this. Uh, Brendan McGeever over at the Pears Institute at Birkbeck is doing great work on this. Um, I think there's a, a wide range of people uh, on the left 
um, and who are committed leftists, who are able to produce a consistent left-wing um, answer to this question. And of course, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm committed to trying to do that myself, and I know Salvage is. Um, and I think that if we can win this argument on the left, we can from being something that can be instrumentalized, that can be weaponized. What we can't do um, is, you know, uh, necessarily convince everybody who is pro-Israel that being critical of Israel or even being critical of Zionism isn't anti-Semitic. There are a lot of people who are still going to think if you're critical of Zionism, then you're anti-Semitic. And, you know, we have to just recognize that and uh, work with that as a material factor. There's no point uh, in trying to uh, placate those types of people. So it's not about placating anyone. It's about having a principled stance against racism because racism is a material force that I mean, apart from being oppressive and exploitative in various uh, ways, it's a material force that actually structures society to the benefit of conservatism and the right. It protects and defends oppression. You mentioned earlier um, the uh, the Judas group, uh, you know, radical socialist group drawing inspiration from uh, the Jewish Bundist uh, movement. Is your sense that the uh, the attack on on them? by the media has has been a, a case of overreaching in the sense that yeah. you know it's sort of drawing distinctions between uh good jews and bad jews at the same time it's uh raising awareness that of of non-zionist um jewish political traditions it's it's not obvious that this is to the benefit of uh the opponents of the labor party yeah, that was a massive miscalculation, um, largely because they underestimated Judas. You know, they uh, they just thought, oh, these guys are nutters. I mean, this is what uh, uh, Andrew Neil said. Um, they're not nutters. They're extremely um, smart, sophisticated um, and witty. And it was their nimble footedness um, and their wit and the, the fact that they brought a sheer kind of ebullience and joy to what they were doing without in any way conceding any of the arguments. I mean, that's quite crucial. Um, they picked on Judas um, thinking that they were, you know, nutters, as Andrew Neil put it. But they were wrong about that. Judas um, are an extremely sophisticated, smart and witty um, bunch of activists um, who, you know, they were able to take hold of this situation and nimbly outmaneuver pompous, dull critics to their right and to blow open the whole question of, you know, who gets to speak for Jewish people. Because uh, the unconscious assumption, and in some cases not even unconscious, was that the Board of Deputies does it, you know. Um, and there is a long tradition in this society of various uh, so-called representative groups claiming to say, uh, claiming to speak for black people, claiming to speak for Muslims, and in this case, claiming to speak for Jews. Um, and they often represent relatively conservative um, politics. They're often um, de def deferential towards the nation uh, and uh, deferential towards certain kinds of middle-class mores um, and uh, sort of uh, political leanings. So... I think Judas, by um, just being who they are and drawing attention to themselves, even if they didn't set out to do so, uh, and just 
completely annihilating their opponents on social media changed the tenor of the argument completely. Prior to the attack on Judas, uh, there had been a general sense of despondency and defeat on the left, even you know, among those who thought, well, at least we're dealing with this issue now. Uh, at least we can have some sort of clearing of the air and an attempt to create a more healthy politics. Um, there was a, just a general sense that this is, this is bad. Um, and they brought joy um, to the situation. And I, I, you know, I, I think you can't have a better tribute than that. Regarding the media, the coverage doesn't seem to have particularly hurt Labour's polling. Um, but in contrast to things like the uh, the Czech spy story and so on, it does seem to have provided an opportunity for Corbyn's opponents in the uh, parliamentary party to, to do their usual uh, grandstanding. Um, how do you think this is likely to play out in terms of the PLP? Um, we've again had stories about uh, a, another uh, centrist party in formation, what um, one of many. If and when any split occurs, do you think the anti-Semitism question is likely to play a large part in its uh, in the justification for any such split? Uh, I can't see it. Uh, I mean, I can see it being. Um, if if a scandal were to emerge um, at just the right time, then possibly it could be used as the cutting edge. But it would, I mean, obviously it would involve um, a lot more than that. I suppose one possibility along those lines would be if the various bin hokers and people who have been going through social media accounts for months and months and months, trawling through years of content, hundreds of thousands of posts, um, if all of those people have found something that incriminates somebody somewhere who's quite influential and they're just sitting on it for now until the moment when they can release it and say, right, that's it, we're out of here. Well, I could see how that could work. Okay, um, that's possible. However, I still don't think it's going to make any difference to their chances. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, surprisingly enough, within the space of uh, almost three years now, maybe, um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his allies have you know, despite incredible odds against them, taken control of one bit of the Labour Party after another. And, you know, the damage done to uh, the leadership standing on the NEC uh, with uh, Christine Shawcroft having to step down, having uh, inadvertently defended a Holocaust denier. Um, well, that's, that's quite serious. But at the same time, you know, they've got the... Um, Labour Party headquarters uh, locked down. They've got uh, the membership on side. They've got the trade union still overwhelmingly on side. Um, it seems likely that the makeup of the parliamentary party is going to gradually uh, alter and change anyway. Um, and uh, that the uh, local government group will begin to alter and change, uh, as we're seeing it with scandals like the Harringay Development Vehicle pro producing a pretty big shift to the left in Harringay Council. Um, so I think that uh, their their position, uh, that of the Labour right, is quite beleaguered. Um, they have the support of the mainstream media. They have the support of a section of uh, the sort of London liberal uh, sort of, um, uh, I don't know, liberal middle class. Um, 
but uh, that uh, and, and of course as we've saw as we've seen they've had the support of a number of millionaires this isn't the basis for the kind of split that we saw with the SDP, and the SDP was a massive failure. So I think that um, any sort of Macronite dreams that they might be entertaining uh, are going to bite the dust. In your uh, recent article for Jacobin, you um, you point out that support for Labour amongst um, amongst British Jews, although it's at a historic low, it's pretty much the same as it was under Ed Miliband. How should we understand declining Jewish support for Labour, given that that decline precedes Corbyn's elevation to uh, to the leadership? Uh, well, long term, there are a number of things. First of all, it's just a fact that uh, the Jewish community in Britain has undergone since the Second World War uh, tremendous social mobility. Um, not uh, as conspiracy theorists would have it overwhelmingly to the upper class or anything like that, not to uh, the capitalist class, but to the middle class. Um, I mean, obviously, there remains class differentiation within the Jewish community as in any other. Um, but there's a, a preponderance uh, of, uh, you know, middle class positions there. And, uh, you know, one of the, the effects of this, of course, is to give one a stake in the society and uh, um, to allow one to identify with the dominant institutions. Um, people are uh, not radicalized spontaneously. Um, they're radicalized by oppression and exploitation and various other experiences. And when those experiences um, retruded, generally speaking, there was a move to the conservative center, center right. Um, and then when the British middle class, or at least a section of it, moved to the hard right uh, with the emergence of Mrs. Thatcher, uh, British Jews were among them. Um, so Mrs. Thatcher won over a large chunk of the Jewish community. Um, and at the same time, uh, the, the Labour left was beginning to turn against Israel and become pro-Palestinian. Um, and that alienated quite a lot of people as well. I don't want to overstate the role of Israel in this. Um, I think it's very important that we don't go down the route of thinking anything that, you know, whenever we talk about Jewish people voting, engaged in politics, it's always about Israel. Uh, that's uh, a reductive analysis um, and potentially even an anti-Semitic analysis. Um, but Israel sort of weirdly and in different ways, depending on who you're talking to, becomes a kind of displacement uh, issue, a stand-in for a whole series of other things. Um, so that broadly speaking, um, if you're pro-Israel, Jewish or not, you're likely to be in favor of a broadly center-right consensus politics, a kind of uh, military belligerence, because that is congruent with support for Israel, um, uh, and in favor of uh, economic orthodoxy. Um, these things don't have any necessary belonging with one another, these positions, but uh, you might say they have a certain elective affinity uh, within British politics over the last 40 years. Um, so it's not surprising that Israel can come to stand in for some other things. But when um, the chief rabbi under Mrs. Thatcher decided to rally to her cause and defend her against uh, other churches, for example, who were criticizing the Thatcherite uh, revolution, um, on social grounds, 
he defended it, not having any reference to Israel at all, actually, but overwhelmingly on social grounds, on the grounds that uh, the war against the unions was justified, on the grounds that uh, welfare was, uh, uh, you know, uh, overinflated, and on the grounds that uh, black people living in cities should look to um, uh, uh, Jewish people and how they've succeeded and uh, uh, strive more, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a lot of this kind of uh, racist politics as well. Um, so this is the politics of middle class conservatism. Um, so I think that this uh, is, is part of the sort of the long arc that we've seen. But I mean, we have to say that I don't think it was the case uh, until 2015 that the level of Jewish support for labor became so low. I mean, it was already uh, in long term decline in 2010. Um, after years of New Labour, and New Labour actually did reasonably well with Jewish voters um, because it positioned itself uh, in the centre-right and therefore, uh, you know, broadly speaking, picked up uh, a lot of middle-class um, city-based voters. Um, well, uh, you know, by 2010, maybe there was uh, around 25-30% of Jewish voters who were supporting Labour. Well, it cut almost in half, um, uh, if not more, under Ed Miliband. And it's worth asking, what are the reasons for that? Because Ed Miliband would have been, um, if you discount Benjamin Disraeli, the first Jewish prime minister of Great Britain. And he had been uh, subject to anti-Semitism. He had been openly jubilated by uh, Tories. Um, even that stuff about the bacon sandwich had some arguably anti-Semitic undertones to it. Um, you know, there, there was a lot going on there. And yet the majority of Jewish voters did, weren't drawn to him. On the one hand, that's a pretty good argument against any uh, sort of uh, stupid idea of Jewish communalism, you know, the idea of an automatic Jewish vote. Uh, on the other hand, um, it does lend some credence to the argument that uh, Palestine and support for Palestinian statehood is at least one of the issues that would have driven already rightward moving um, voters to further to the right and away from the Labour Party. And uh, if you remember um, at the time, uh, the actress Maureen Lipman um, made some, I mean, among some appallingly racist comments about, about Palestinians, uh, made a statement saying that she would never support Labour again. Um, and she had been a lifelong Labour supporter um, because of its uh, Labour support for Palestinian statehood. Um, so even the recognition of the national rights of Palestinians was going too far to the left for them. I have to say, it's worth actually um, going and looking at the polls among Jewish voters on this sort of issue and trying to figure out exactly how much uh, that really matters, because... Actually, um, support for Palestinian statehood, two states and so on, is, it's not that uncommon. I mean, it's its probably uh, got a, a sort of plurality of Jewish voters in support of it. So uh, one wonders what else is at stake in those decisions as well. Um, but I think Israel might have been an issue that pushed a lot of people who were already moving right for class reasons and for other reasons uh, further to the right. With regard to Palestine, obviously the last uh, two weeks we've seen Israeli soldiers murdering unarmed uh, Palestinian protesters. Do you think 
the uh, the media campaign against the uh, the Labour leadership. Do you think that has had a chilling effect on their confidence in uh, condemning Israel? I think I think Corbyn has still made statements, a number of statements, um, and they've been pretty good. You know, better than most Labour leaders. Um, I think it's possible that the vehemence and force of it has been uh, blunted somewhat. But, uh, you know, the, the thing is, one of the arguments that uh, we have had to make, and which has often even been made by supporters of Israel, is that it is anti-Semitic to conflate Jews with Israel. Israel is one thing, Jewish people are another. Now, as soon as you say that, um, you come up against uh, a, a number of objections uh, which have some sort of foundation. One of them is that many, many Jewish people, even if they're not responsible for the decisions of the Israeli state, uh, have a complex emotional relationship with Israel. And indeed, uh, Judas brought this up. I think Gellner Penny brought it up. Um, I know that other commentators have brought it up. Essentially saying, you know... Um, I mean, it's not in most of these cases, not saying don't criticize Israel, but uh, pleading for an acknowledgement of the uh, sort of the complicated relationship that Jewish people can have to Israel. Um, now, does that mean that, you know, uh, acknowledging and confronting anti-Semitism means that you uh, mitigate your critique? Well, no, not in any uh, immediate short term sense. Uh, and long term, it really depends on how you interpret that complexity. If that complexity, which exists, um, is taken to mean, therefore, uh, the analysis of Israel as a settler colonial society uh, is somehow unavailing or inappropriate, which has been implied um, by a number of commentators, then I think that's flatly wrong. I think the fact that it's not sufficient to describe Israel as a settler colonial society or not sufficient to describe Zionism, Zionism in terms of that outcome um, is true, but it's, it's not a reason to discount that type of analysis. And the reason why uh, we have to be able to talk in those terms is because in order to maintain an intelligent, strategically uh, well-oriented opposition to the crimes of the Israeli state, we have to understand something about the nature of that state. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I think that short-term, maybe Corbyn himself and some of his allies will be very careful about how they criticise Israel, perhaps in terms of uh, very carefully calibrating the tone um, and perhaps uh, uh, wanting to avoid the standard accusation from uh, Israeli government officials that criticism of Israel's double standards, its obsession with the Jewish state, and so on and so on and so on. But I think long-term clarifying the argument on anti-Semitism and working through this stuff, this complex stuff, uh, can lead to a far better, more rigorous and more sustainable critique of Israel than we have seen in the past. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. Do follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Poll Theory Other. And we'll be back next week.